As indicated last week, we have a brief two-part series, one in the morning and now in the afternoon. And in the afternoon, we take up 1 John chapter 3. Over the next two weeks, this and next, looking at verses 1 to 3, and this week especially looking at the first two of those verses. 1 John 3, for the sake of some context, reading verses 1 through 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Neither the, therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. Well, these three verses come and assert to us the gracious and beautiful truth of adoption, which is, as we note in our catechism, a grace. And so it is indeed a great blessing to us that it is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right into all of the privileges of the sons of God. And you see that here in the, these few verses. So the greatness of His love, which He has given, bestowed upon us, that we should be and are called the sons of God. And yet it also explains something of the antagonism we experience in this world. Because there is, of course, a war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of uh, the woman. The world and the church. And so by God bringing us into His family, He's also placed us on a particular side of the battle. The world knows us not. It doesn't mean merely it doesn't know about us, though that's included, but rather it also doesn't acknowledge the glory, the privilege, the majesty, and the dignity that is yours. So you can see this by example, can't you? The world doesn't care if you're a Christian. The world doesn't think much of that. If you were to go into a public place and say, I am a child of the living God. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. By grace, the world would with a mere passing glance think nothing of it and say, what's the big deal? And this is something of what's going on. There is, in other words, an extraordinary blessing in being one who is adopted into God's family. And yet, brethren, you and I know it. We don't yet see it ourselves. We don't see the overwhelming riches of grace and glory as it will be seen on the last day. Think of how Paul says that even creation groans for what? But for the revelation, the manifestation of the sons of God. It's not yet openly manifest. It's not yet clearly acknowledged. Though it is truly so, it's not yet apparent to this present world. 
And yet you'll notice John goes further. Now are we the sons of God. And he acknowledges, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, speaking of Christ, we shall be like Him. for We shall see Him as He is. John's getting at this point. He's saying, it's not yet seen by the eyes as it will be seen when Christ returns. And this is, of course, instantly understandable to the Christian who's read the Bible. Because what happens on the last day? Christ makes this open division. And He divides His people from the world. We read of some of that in the parables as He separates the wheat from the tares. Well, what's going on is He's separating His children from the world, as it were. And He's going to openly declare all of those blessings in the sight of all of the earth. And then all of the earth, with which, which with a indifferent sigh heard our testimonies, are going to realize they are children of the King. John is building this up for us. He's pointing out our present privileges and yet our coming glory. And that then leads verse 3, which we'll consider, Lord willing, next week, to this impact upon us. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. This truth that now is and the truth which will manifest itself more fully in the world to come has a present consequence in our lives that we live as the children of God. We live with the dignity and the spiritual and gracious splendor that indeed testifies that we have this hope. Notice that John uses that word Every man that hath this hope. Children, the word hope is far more than what our world presently teaches. The world talks about hoping for this outcome or that outcome or this gift or that gift and really means something synonymous to wish. But in the Bible, the word hope means a confident expectation. We have an assured and certain expectation that this will come to pass. We know it will be. It's not a matter of 99% hopeful wish, but rather it is 100% certainty this will come to pass. And with that comes a present work of gracious change, which we'll look at the Lord willing next week. Now brethren, as we noted, the idea of adoption is not something that springs up anew in the New Testament. It's something that is throughout the Bible. It's less and it's more veiled, as it were, under the Old Testament because it was waiting for the revelation of the essential Son of God who brings to us the full privileges in this life of adoption. And the Spirit of grace and supplication and the Spirit of adoption to be poured out to provide us the riches of these things And yet Israel was called the Son of God, the firstborn of God. And so you can see the covenant privileges as it were anticipating and enjoying something of that adoption. But it did await the fuller display under the new covenant that we should enjoy the richer and the fuller testimony of being His children. So this afternoon what we wish to look at is to consider the grace of adoption 
which shows forth the great love of God. Now this may be difficult for us to consider unless it is that one has come from a broken situation to be adopted into a richly furnished and full of love situation. That's what's being gotten at. That we who were once not a people are now the people of God. We who once were enemies are now brought into His family and made children. So to help us with this, we wish to look at three things. Firstly, the meaning of adoption. Secondly, the benefits of adoption. And thirdly, the cause of adoption. The meaning, the benefits, and the cause. This has in various ways been called a neglected doctrine. Adoption. And indeed you can see the treatment of it is often thin in our own heritage and history. Though it is asserted, of course, in our confessional standard and catechism, it can be argued that it does not receive the full uh, treatment that it is worthy to receive. And works throughout history have been few and far between, though there are treasure troves that are given to us in some works. And so to help address some of that, that we may better understand what is ours in order to better understand what will be ours and better understand how we are to be, we consider then these three things. Firstly then, the meaning of adoption. And you can see that asserted here in our verse when it says in verse 1 that we should be called the sons of God. This expression called is not only like the idea of effectual calling, but it could be uh, uh, translated with the idea of named. These are the names that we bear. We are named this. This is our relationship now. We are called the sons of God, which is to imply at the least that once we weren't. It doesn't say, understand this, it doesn't say that we are by nature the sons of God. That would be error. We aren't by nature the sons of God. We are by nature the enemies of God. We are by nature those who rebel against God. We are by nature, as Paul says in Ephesians, children of wrath, even as others. That's our heritage as those who come from Adam. So the meaning of adoption is very much related to what we understand adoption to be civilly in this world. One who is not a natural son or daughter, one who is not one born of the womb of the mother, is then brought into a family. It is a legal act granting the status, the privileges, the benefits which belong unto that household. And this is what's expressed in this. This is why John says, Behold, look! Consider the wonder, the manner of this love, that we should be called the children, the sons of God. And notice for a moment in the text, John isn't in some distant way speaking of the Gentiles alone or others and saying that you should be called the sons of God. But he's identifying himself saying this is of an inestimable benefit that any of us should have this great privilege. That we who stood as enemies against Him, worthy of condemnation, should be brought from being an enemy and being, as it were, children of our father, Satan, 
as liars and sinners and be brought into his family to be given all of the privileges that belong unto the sons of God. Now, brethren, this is a doctrine that is more fully opened in the New Testament. And one such example, of course, is Galatians. As it comes to mind, chapter 4. As Paul speaks similarly of the same. And opening up these notions of the beauty of all of this uh, provision to us that once we were not the people of God, but now we are. But notice for a moment that this comes to us by way of grace. We'll consider more of this in a moment. But notice, for instance, in verse 5, Christ has said, Galatians 4, verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So here, it is, in other words, not a natural standing we have to God. This is why when you hear the false mercy and love of so-called liberal churches saying we're all the children of God, it's actually a satanic lie that is underappreciating the truth of God's grace. And it's misleading those who are bound to their sins to misjudge the way of true acceptance, peace, and joy, which comes only through Christ. So notice as Paul says in Galatians 4, that it is by Christ that we're redeemed so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And then because of that, ye are sons. God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. Notice you have the Trinity. It's God, speaking of the Father, hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so the legal act of adoption brings about a spiritual privilege that we now have, not just the outward privileges belonging to us as the sons of God, but we are made to enjoy the spiritual privilege belonging to the sons of God. But notice the link. It all comes to us through the essential Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no adoption of any of us were it not for the sake of the essential Son of God, Jesus Christ, humbling Himself and doing that which was needed to bring us into His family. There's a beauty here that is, of course, astounding. There have been stories of adopted children being made those who were the objects of jealousy by the natural children. And so, here's a family with children, then the parents adopt one or two or more, and the natural children become a bit jealous. And they say, well, this is our family. This is the, my mom and this is my dad. Whereas adoption is now saying to the adopted children, this is your family. This is your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister. But here's the beauty of this grace of adoption. The essential Son of God, Jesus Christ, is one such cause, and gladly so, of our being brought to enjoy all of the privileges which He has enjoyed, as it were, for eternity. There's no jealousy in the sinful sense of the word between the essential and eternal Son of God and the adopted children of God. 
Well, John says that we should be called the sons of God. There used to be in previous generations an idea of breeding among households. And this is not the sort of abusive way that some speak of it, but the breeding of culture and the breeding of good morals and so on. And the name of a family used to be important. And so there would be the statement of, um, you know, we are, fill in the blank last name, we are Davises. We live as Davises. Our actions are going to be like the Davises. We are uh, Johnsons, and so we live as Johnsons, and this is how the Johnsons are, and so on. And there's something good about that if, of course, the heritage of that name is of any uh, notoriety and good things. But think of this for a moment regarding the meaning of adoption. We are brought to be those who are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ Jesus, sons and daughters of God. And so the most noble, the most royal family ever to have lived, and you think of royalty and all of the pomp and circumstance and the mannerisms and the culture that is cultivated through long tutelage and much learning and manners and all of these things, so that the way a royal son walks shows that they are indeed trained by the royal family. All of this is true. Their manners, their customs. And they know indeed how to navigate all of the things that are there. Our society has obliterated manners and customs. We hardly know how to introduce ourselves, much less the propriety with which a man should treat a woman and children should treat adults. We have to look back to former times to say, oh, we sort of get the idea. There is propriety acknowledged. And families used to cultivate propriety in the way their family would go. We still have the remnant of this when a parent says to their child, I don't care what so-and-so's parents do. I don't care how so-and-so's parents let them carry on. You don't belong to their family. I'm your mom. I'm your dad. You're my son. You're my daughter. And so however much the world obliterates what is basic to societal norms, it can't fully escape it. Now why do we labor this? To help us understand what John's getting at. He's impressing us with the privilege. We who are worthy of being engulfed in wrath for our sin, who rebelled against so noble a God as God is, and who would have set ourselves in our own way forever unto our own undoing, have been brought to enjoy the privilege of being called and given a right to being the sons of God. This ennobles us. It causes us to see whatever my earthly line is, my earthly line doesn't matter anymore compared to my true identity as a son or daughter of God. Behold it. Wonder at it. So as we start to realize this, we start to realize the great nobility that belongs unto us as the sons and daughters of God. And all of this by God's grace. So adoption is the bringing of one who did not have a right into the right standing before God through Jesus Christ, now to have a right to all of the privileges that belong unto His household. 
Secondly, the benefits of adoption. We can divide this as the text does into two points. The first is to note the present benefits of adoption. And this is found in verse 1, the same that we've been looking at, that we should be called the sons of God. And the idea is a present weight. It's something that we presently are. We are called, rightly so, the sons of God. Now, we have to acknowledge that presently it's not fully seen as it should be seen or it will be seen. But it is nonetheless a present reality. And so this is something for us to consider. To enjoy this benefit of adoption requires faith and understanding. Because you can't look at someone and say, by their outward appearance, there's a son of God, there's a daughter of God, there's a child of God. This is something that is indistinguishable by mere outward appearance. You know, pagan art and brought into the church has sought to do this by you know, painting a halo over someone's head. Well, aren't we thankful that there's far more important things than an artificial sign of a halo? And the real enjoyment in this life is by the exercising of faith upon our Father's Word. Christ is regularly getting at this. Think about when He is resurrected. He says, tell my people that I go to my Father and your Father. Right? He's bringing this out. He's pointing out this relationship that He's established by His grace. He really is our Father. When you pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. He's placing this into our lives so that we would live in conscious awareness that the God of heaven and earth is truly my Father. He is in a relation toward me by His grace through the blood of His eternal Son incarnate who suffered on the cross. He's brought into a relationship of love and privilege and care. Whatever we think of the love of exemplary fathers in this life, Christ answers how small that is in comparison to our Father's love when He says, if ye being evil know how to give good gifts to your sons. And then He points out how much more our Father which is in heaven. How much more will He give the kingdom? How much more will He give the Spirit? What's He getting at? The present benefits is the assurance that God is reconciled to us by the blood of Christ and is not just reconciled so as to forget about us as if a king with great you know, plunder has looked at all of it for a moment and says, you know what, put that in the treasury and the person comes back and says, well, what part of the treasury? Do you want it part next to this treasure or that treasure? And the king says, well, I sort of forgot about that. You know, those are treasures that I have. I didn't know that. That's not how Christ is to His people. That's not how God the Father is to His people. He treasures His people. He's not only reconciled to them and places them somewhere in His kingdom, they are His dear children. So that we may come with assurance to say, Our Father in heaven, here's what I need. And have the great comfort of knowing by faith that He in heaven hears. That's why Paul is laboring in Galatians 4 about prayer. And so the Spirit of His Son is given to us for what end? That we may cry out, Abba, Father. That we may draw near in assurance and say, You are my God, yes. But as my God reconciled to me through Jesus Christ, 
you are my Father, who is, as it were, inclined toward me for good. What father is there who has any measure of grace if his son came to him in real need and came and said, Dad, I need help. That the father wouldn't instantly say, okay, what is it? Let's talk and let's see what we can do. And yet, Christ says, you do that being evil. What's the point? We get a picture, a faint whisper of it in those moments. And yet it is a faint whisper of the large volume of God's love to His people. Now you remember on Wednesday, this isn't to lead us to a casual sort of cool relationship with God. The more we understand this, the more that we'll actually carry ourselves reverently to Him. The God of heaven and earth is reconciled to me. And what am I? What am I? And brethren, don't you see that in the text? Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called. That we, what are we? That we should be called the sons of God. It cultivates a great comfort and humility at the same time. That the God of heaven and earth truly is reconciled to me by the cross of Christ. And yet that reconciliation is such that He continues toward me in love, in kindness, in faithfulness. This is the fact of grace in our adoption. God is for us as a father who loves his children. So God is one who is for us as He who loves His children. That's a present benefit. How so? Because many times, don't you discover it? John's actually making this point. The world doesn't care for you really. Some of us can think back to worldly episodes in our lives and how so-called friends of that time were leading us unto sin. And likewise, we leading them unto sin. Is that friendship? Is that actual care? Because what's going on in those moments? But one is leading them unto the hardening of their hearts and apart from God's intervention, the destruction and damnation of their souls forever. That's not friendship. There may be tight intimacy in some sense, but it's not real friendship. And yet here is the Lord seeking our good. And so when the world stands opposed to us, Here, faith steps in and says, but God is not only for me, He is my Father for me in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a benefit to encourage us. What happens when a husband, a wife, a child, a parent turns away and would cast us off and ridicule and mock us and all of these things? We can remember our Father in heaven will never forsake or leave us. What happens when the church falters and fails? We can remember we have a Father in heaven who will not falter or fail. And you start to see how the Psalms are actually breathing this into our thoughts and our souls. Though me, my father, and mother and father both should leave, the Lord will me uptake. The God of heaven and earth, the God who made heaven and earth, He is my God. 
This is the aspect of grace coming into us that right now, He who neither slumbers nor sleeps will watch over us. Almost everyone here will have had parents who watched them in the night season. Our bodies, perhaps, as infants were sick. And who was it that was watching over us? But a loving mother or loving father who was already sleepless, who already had many things to do, and yet their affection toward their son or daughter kept them up, nursing, caring for, watching, taking temperature, making sure food is there, cleaning up, all of those things. Why? Because the mom or dad loves the child. And yet that's a little picture, a little whisper, Christian, of the Father's care of you. He truly cares for you. And isn't this contrary to what Satan tells us? And what, as it were, we would judge of ourselves and we look by what's seen and we say, well, if God did care for me, wouldn't these things be changed? We'll see that in just a moment. But understand this, that our Father in Heaven is the perfect Father who perfectly loves. There's no measure of love in this life that parallels the depth and degree of love that God the Father has toward His people. You say, can you prove that? Well, we need not to turn even books of the Bible because it's John himself who will write later, verse 9 of chapter 4, and this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, again, here's the evidence, the clear proof. God loves us. How so? In that He has given His only begotten Son to redeem and reconcile us to enjoy His favor forever. That's what we now are. There's no halo showing it. It's the testimony of God's Word received by faith and experienced by grace that over time confirms it again and again and again. This isn't the only benefit of adoption. There is the future benefit when all will be publicly disclosed and manifested. As here is said, we where it says in verse 2, we are the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Let's just pause there for a moment and think of that expression. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. There are, of course, ways in which we can say grace is glory in the seed. Glory is grace in the fruit. Right. So what's begun in us in this life is something that will continue unto perfection in the life to come. And yet, brethren, as you follow a saint, however long they live, they go through the aging process, wrinkles form, hair turns gray, knees start to ache, systems fail. All of these things happen. And so you can track and, tra and trace the life of a believer, and you can track and trace the life of an unbeliever, and outwardly, Physically, there's no change. There's no difference. It's not as if the Christian becomes invincible 
and they have no more sickness, no more illness, no decay. They're free from all sorts of mental lapses and aging processes. They don't have illness and disease. Those things come to the believer. It was recommended to listen to an address by Reverend Craig Scott on Frank Jenner. And if you listen to that, you'll see that in his later life, this Christian who was an unfailing servant of the Lord was one who was struck with outward difficulty unto his dying day. Many saints have died of difficult circumstances. It's not yet seen the glory that shall be seen on the last day. What will it be like to be so transformed by His grace that our bodies are glorified? That our minds are perfected. Our souls are perfected. All of it so. What will it be like to see Satan underneath our feet? What will it be like to look upon the torment of the damned? What will it be like to enjoy the fellowship of angels and saints of God and to be worshiping the triune God in glory? That's yet to be seen. It's not yet seen. And yet, brethren, it is the certain future of every believer. Some of you, all of you have to travel home from here. Some of you have the expectation, you know, we're going to be on the road for this long and so on. We're going to see these things along the way. It is more certain you're seeing of Christ in glory than you're walking through those doors later this afternoon. It is more certain those things will come to pass because they're guaranteed by virtue of God's grace and particularly by His grace of adoption. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that. Notice, not, not we're wishing for it, but we know that when He, Christ, shall appear, we shall be like Him. The glory that is described of Christ at His resurrection, the glory that is described of Christ at His transfiguration, the glory that breaks out on occasion from Christ in other places is a glory that will be placed upon His children, the children of His Father, His brothers and sisters by grace. And the world will see it. And the world which mocked Christians will have this inability within themselves to reconcile the foolishness of their ignorance and the present then glory of God's children. This is a coming benefit that awaits every believer in Christ Jesus. The glory that is to come is a certain benefit that is yours. Your body perfected, so no illness. And yet, brethren, the body being but part, the soul perfected, so there's no lapse, there's no temptation. All of this to be in perfection is your certain hope. And yet think how this is challenged, not only by the world, but even by our own doubts. Some of us live for a number of years and we start to wonder, Lord, how is it possible that I struggle so with these trials, these difficulties? How is my faith so weak? How is it that I don't live with dignity as I ought to live? Here's an encouragement that comes to us. What is presently the case is not what will be the case forever for the Christian. There's a time coming for the Christian, every Christian, where there will no longer be a struggle with temptation. There will no longer be a faltering 
trip up in our carriage before the Lord. There will no longer be doubts in our thoughts and minds, but all will be fully conformed because we shall be like Him. How will we understand just how privileged this is until we also look upon the damned in their agony and say, that's what I deserve. All of the disfigurement, all of the torment, all of the agony, and yet in perfected glory, no sense of, as it were, injustice, nothing of that, no sadness, for all will be perfectly glorifying God. And yet inescapably, we will realize with greater insight than ever before, that's what I deserve. Look what I have. Some people say, well, you know, the Christian won't be able to see the damned and so on, which is understandable why people say that because we struggle with, you know, I can't tolerate the thought right now. And that's right, because none of us can tolerate it. But when we see, for instance, the different descriptions of heaven, we see this notion that there will be an awareness of the redeemed of the damned. And it's as Paul says, for instance, the vessels fitted beforehand for destruction. One reason for that is so that the vessels fitted beforehand for mercy would see indeed that it's mercy that has caused them to have this privilege. And of course, you think of the testimony of Christ's parable with the rich man and Lazarus. And though there is a great chasm fixed, which is unable to be overcome, there is, even in his parable, something of an understanding of both on either side. Whatever the case, here's the point. The distinction between the sons of Satan and the sons of God on the last day will make it most apparent how greatly benefited and privileged the believer was and then is. Well, lastly, then the cause of adoption. What is it that brings about these great benefits? John tells us quite simply, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. It's the love of God freely and graciously given. He didn't look and say, ooh, there's one that has better qualities and I'll sort of bring that along this way. And there's one that has poorer qualities and I'll leave that one aside. It's rather the love of God which freely was settled upon us by His grace from all eternity. This is what Paul is so on about again and again in his epistles from before the foundation of the earth. God had set His love upon His people and had drawn them out of what they would deserve and given them unto Christ that through Christ they should be redeemed. And there's such a close connection between redemption, justification, and adoption. They're both acts of God's free grace. They're both by virtue of the mediation and work of Christ. And so it is that in having Christ given to us, not only are we justified, but we are adopted and brought into the family of God. All of this is the outworking of God's gracious and undeserved love. This is something we should entertain for a moment and realize. In endless ages of heaven, the believer who will be glorified to enjoy the inexpressible presently 
inexpressible glory that is to come. We'll enjoy every second of eternity only because of God's free grace and love. It's the only reason. Every part of all eternity will be ours to enjoy because of this manner of love. None of us is entirely untouched by the news of privileged people. We see billboards and it talks about, you know, the lottery is up to a hundred and X million dollars. And then it comes out so and so won it. And we can't escape the thought that person has just entered upon a great privilege. Whatever else our thoughts are about the unlawfulness of the same. We hear stories about someone moving into a great house. Perhaps we're on a trip and we see these large houses and we say, those are privileged people. We see certain cars passes and say, that's a privileged person. And yet John passes by all of those outward measurements and said, if you want to know wherein God's love is truly shown, it's in this. It's that you are now a child of God. That's where true joy, true privilege, true benefit is found. By the manner of love which has been placed upon us. Well, brethren, the cause of adoption is this grace which leads us to enjoy all of the benefits of adoption which are both now and forever. What should this do but lead us first and foremost to give thanks to God for so great a privilege as this. When was the last time that you and I particularly sat before the Lord and said, thank you for the grace of adoption. Thank you that whereas I was once not a people, I'm now the people of God. Whereas once a child of wrath fitted for destruction as it were, now you've made me a child of God by grace through the redemption of your everlasting Son, Jesus Christ, whose Spirit has now been given unto me, that I may draw near with assurance that God is my God and that He is my Father. You see, brethren, this doctrine is far more than some removed teaching. It actually helps us in the practice of our piety, the outworking of our thanksgiving and praise and the comforts that we enjoy in this life, that whatever else is taken from us, we have this surely as ours, that we are His children. So we ought to thank Him. Specifically, but brethren, we ought also to understand the privileges afforded to us that we may enjoy them. You can think of an adopted child who perhaps, as in our own system, they were raised by this foster home and then transferred to that foster home and then entertained by this family only to be removed and rejected and then ultimately a family comes and they who had known no stability, no real love, are now in a family that truly loves them and truly wants to provide and the father and mother take time to tell them, you're now our child, we're now your parents, what we have is yours, our resources are yours, perhaps they never had much by way of medical care. And now the father is well employed and all of the medical care is able to go to this child. Perhaps the child never had any diversity of diet and meals. And now this family is well uh, instructed in those things and is able to provide those things. Perhaps this child had never known 
the benefits of a trip out of state or even uh, to the ocean. Now this family is able to take them and all of these privileges. And yet, in some sense, the child, until instructed, will not really understand those privileges. And so if you and I are to understand the privileges that are given to us, we need to be instructed. What are the privileges that belong to the sons and daughters, the children of God? We need to search them out. But it's not just to the end that we can categorize them and place them, as it were, on some spreadsheet and say, here are these kinds of privileges and there are those kinds of privileges. The purpose of the Lord giving these to us is that so you and I would enjoy them. Some of us have relatives who take it as a personal offense if you don't eat the food they prepare for you because they've labored over it and it's their love to us and so on. There's, as it were, more offense for us not sincerely to take advantage of all the privileges that God has given to us. Why? Because every last one of them is the consequence of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We underappreciate Christ when we fail to take advantage of the privileges He's bought for us. He labored for every comfort. He gave Himself for every point of access that we have. He bore the wrath of God, His Father, that you would have the sunshine of His love fall upon you to warm and nurture you. And for us, as it were, to draw back into the shadows and say, I'm not worthy of it, is a partial truth that has been wrongly represented. Of course we're not worthy of it. But Christ is worthy of it. He's purchased it for us in accordance to the Father's purpose and love. And so, because Christ is worthy of it, we have every right to enjoy it fully. Our enjoyment of it is not because of ourselves. Here's the point. Our enjoyment of it is because of God. The Father's love to us, the Son's purchase of it for us, the Spirit's applying it to us. This is why we have a right to it. A natural-born son can in some way say, I have a right to this because in some sense, I naturally have that right. You know, I was born to this family. I don't have to love my parents. My parents don't have to love me. When they die, I get the inheritance. Well, it shouldn't be that way, but it can be that way. But an adopted child only has those rights because of the goodness of the adoptive parents. And yet, they're really His. They're really hers. And when we set aside all the cruelties of men and all the ignorance of men and we think about the God who has brought us to be His children, then we start to see, I have a real right to all of these things because of the love of God to me in Jesus Christ. Brethren, live not beneath the privilege that Christ has purchased for you but take full advantage of all of them that you may enjoy and give glory to your Father who loved you and sent His Son for you. Finally, what is the best family and breeding and privileges and culture and all of these things if we have not this adoption? We may be natural children of a rich rich family, the natural children of an intelligent family, the natural children of a refined family, And yet, if we aren't in this family, all of those things 
will be taken from us in the end. Here is a reminder of how desperately needful it is that when the Lord takes up the role of heaven, we find that our names are written on that record. And here's the great news. The way of that is by embracing His essential Son who is held forth to sinners that they may be reconciled unto this great God. And so those of you who are believers, study and improve to your advantage the benefits which are yours. And those of you who are not, look upon the Lord Jesus Christ that by Him you should be given a right to these privileges as well. Would you stand with me for prayer?